Welcome to the Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustine Institute. Your hosts, Dr. Jim Prothro and Dr. Israel McGrew, will review the lectionary readings for this Sunday's Mass, explain their context, and help you to appreciate the Church's wisdom in selecting them. Welcome to Formed in the Word. I'm Israel McGrew. I'm James Prothro. And we are professors of sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute. Today we'll be talking about, uh, we'll be looking at the lectionary readings for the Feast of the Epiphany. We'll explain each reading in turn, looking at some of the major themes and the main context, and then we'll tie the different readings together. In her wisdom, the church has put together the lectionary to lead us into the mystery of Christ. Um, so we want to reflect on how all of the readings draw us into that mystery, uh, God's foreshadowing and foretelling of Christ in the Old Testament, and how Christ fulfills uh, not just the Old Testament scriptures, but really the the problem of human existence and human sin uh, as a whole. Yeah. And as usual, uh, we hope that this will be a valuable resource in helping lay people and priests alike as they prepare themselves to enter into the Word, to enter into the Mass, and particularly for priests, right, as priests have the responsibility of feeding their flock, of leading them into the mystery of Christ, and of feeding them on the table of the Word. Right? Just as much as we feed on the table of the Eucharist, so we also feed on the table of the Word. That's right. And with that in mind, uh, I'd like to share, uh, to pray, uh, a prayer to open us up. Uh, that's attributed to Origen, um, praying for knowledge of Scripture and uh, of uh, God's love and grace through it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, inspire us to read your Scriptures and to meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need, that we in turn may put its precepts into practice. Yet we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So we ask that the words of scriptures may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. Through Christ Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Origins always good for a beautiful reflection on scripture. <laughs> yeah, usually so. Usually so. Yeah. He very definitely had seen the light through the mm -hmm. sacred page. Yeah, the light indeed, the light of Epiphany, and the theme that features heavily in our readings. Uh, the first of which is Isaiah sixty. So Isaiah sixty. I'm sorry. Did you have something? Oh, I was just going to add the verses. Isaiah sixty verses one to six. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So Isaiah 60 is in the latter half of Isaiah, which is heavily concerned with Israel's return from captivity, right? So after the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC, and the people of Judah go into exile, and this exile is ended in the 530s um, by Cyrus the Great. And so this latter half of Isaiah is very much concerned with this return from exile and discusses this return from exile as a second exodus. Uh, which theme the gospel writers will pick up on, which is a big part of why Isaiah is often called the fifth gospel, mm -hmm. right? Because um, some passages in, in the earlier part of Isaiah, but very much so in Isaiah 40 and following, uh, speak so perspicuously about the gospel, mm -hmm. right? Matthew, Mark, right? They start with quoting Isaiah 40, right? This is the voice crying in the wilderness. And so Isaiah 60 is also reflecting on this second exodus, this return from, um, right, 
domination by a second empire. So first it was Egypt and now it was Babylon. And eventually later we're thinking about Rome, but in fact it's the empire of Satan that Jesus comes to lead a new exodus out of, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. transfiguration in the gospel of Luke. Uh, Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about the exodus that he was about to accomplish. Not a freedom from some political power, but freedom from Satan's power. Mm -hmm. um, but back to Isaiah 60, right? This is looking for the second exodus, the freedom from the Babylonian empire, and for restoration in Judah. Right? Because it's one thing to get to go home, it's another thing to go home and to have your entire city and countryside still pretty desolate and to be impoverished. And so they're looking for a fuller restoration. Mm. And as Dr. Prothrow already intimated, um, light is an important metaphor in this passage. And this, start, this image of salvation as light piercing through gloom uh, starts in Isaiah 9. So it's a, a theme that runs throughout um, but it's especially important here. So Isaiah 60, verse 1, goes, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And I think John might have read Isaiah once or twice, <laughs> right? Because light is obviously an important image, but so is glory, right? Glory as the manifestation of God. In the Exodus narratives, and remember, Isaiah is doing second Exodus. In the first Exodus narratives, um, the... Lord made himself present through a cloud, a glory cloud. And after Moses puts up the tabernacle, which John refers to Jesus tabernacling among us, the word tabernacling among us. And after Moses completes the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord in the form of this cloud descends. Mm. And so the glory is the visible manifestation, right? a way of mediating the transcendent God. And so the glory rising upon them, um, this is the Lord's return, right? The Lord's being present again amongst Israel. And it's through light and it's through glory. And it's not just Israel. Verse 2, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And so God, in making himself present, in revealing his glory, some visible representation of the transcendent deity in Israel, also makes himself visible to, revealed to the Gentiles, revealed to the nations. Because apart from Christ, we'll, we're all walking in darkness and gloom. Uh, Israel has the prophets to talk about this. Right? The Old Testament, the oracles are entrusted to Israel, but it's in fact reflective of all of humanity, the entire human condition. And it's through Israel's restoration that God reveals himself, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And so the nations in seeing Israel's restoration and in seeing Israel's, you know, hopefully righteousness and all that sort of thing, in turn sees God. So Israel actually mediates God to the nations. In verse 3, Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but <laughs> kings coming to Jesus' presence um, is obviously important for our gospel. Uh, as is verse 6, a multitude of camels shall cover you. Does the gospel actually refer to the magi as like riding on camels? 
I don't think so. But you won't see a nativity scene that doesn't have a camel or two, right? This is and it's probably what they wrote. Um, but it also might be informed by this verse, right? Camels shall cover you, young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, right? Obviously, two of the guests, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, and so when we get to the gospel reading, we'll see that this is being perspicuously fulfilled. And they shall bring good news the praises of the Lord, or the praises of the Lord will be announced. And so the Gentiles, in seeing Israel's salvation, recognize God's glory. Right? This is how God reveals himself to the world, is through Israel and through their restoration. And they bring gifts, right? gold, frankincense, and they bring themselves. Right? They are praising God because they've come to know that the Lord is in fact God. Um, one nuance to bring out from this, recall that this is about Israel's political restoration right, and economic restoration. And so the focus is kind of on the Gentiles as tributaries in a way they are financing Israel's restoration. And so this is um, in a material context, right? In a verse five, six, Isaiah 60, verse five, you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nation shall come to you. That's right. kind of like the first, if this is new Exodus, it's kind of like at the first Exodus, right? Where right, plundering Egypt. Yeah, the, the Egyptians the gold of Egypt. gave all of their uh, gold and their mm -hmm. stuff to the Israelites while they left. Um, but now the nations are coming to Israel. And so whereas one is stuff. a movement out and... Um, you know, there's no reconciliation envisioned at, at the end of the first exodus. Mm -hmm. uh, now there's been the movement out, and now there's also a, a movement towards Israel mm -hmm. with a, a mediation and a sort of reconciliation, it would mm -hmm. seem. Mm -hmm. That's great. Excellent. All right, and our psalm is Psalm 72. Uh, psalm 72 comes at the end of the second book of the Psalter and is a psalm about Solomon, according to the superscription. Um, I don't think there's a, a word in it that you couldn't actually apply directly to Jesus, <laughs> but the superscription makes it clear that this is uh, David's prayer for Solomon. And Solomon is the prototype, right? He's the prototypical son of David, as Jesus is uh, the archetypal son of David, you know, the, the fullest fulfillment of what it is to be the son of David. All the hopes and desires and dreams and promises attached to the son of David are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus in surprising ways. Um, but Solomon as the prototype, who is the king of peace, the king who reigns through wisdom, is the prototype of what it is to be a son of David hmm. before he then fails at his vocation of being a son of David. But this psalm as a prayer of David for Solomon's behalf would obviously be before Solomon's fall, before his shortcomings. Um, and this prayer is a desire that God would mediate his reign, he would mediate his righteousness and his the knowledge of himself through the son of David, right, through Solomon's reign. And so the psalm begins, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. And so God's justice and righteousness are being given to the son such that in verse 2, May he judge your people with righteousness. Well, whose righteousness? And your poor with justice. Whose justice? Well, God's. Mm -hmm. And so Solomon is supposed to mediate 
the righteousness of God to the people of Israel. Yeah, and it's 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 fabulous too. There's um, uh, it, it's fabulous in Psalm seventy two also to see how comprehensive righteousness is, right? Um, righteousness in behavior, justice in terms of everything being put right, and and in terms of kind of setting everything right. I mean, you look at all the different things that happen in Psalm seventy two, right? So we talk about an abundance of grain in verse sixteen. Uh, delivering the needy and the poor, right? Fighting and destroying evil, right? And people who will oppress and people who uh, work against justice. The flourishing of the people and then also his dominion so that he can make mm -hmm. this justice happen over everything and that the ones who will reject it, right? And who will who refuse to submit, right? To the good and just God through his king, he'll fight but the ideal goal, right, is that kings will come and fall down before him, that they will submit, and that mm -hmm. they will be transformed by the same righteousness, right? It's, it's this, it's a, it's a, sometimes we think about justice in really, in ways that are really big, and yet at the same time kind of small, because they're not about sort of God making everything right, yeah. or God giving the king a particular job to make at least these things right, but uh, but just about a, a this thing here, or this thing here, or fairness here, or fairness here, which aren't necessarily wrong. It's but part of the but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but they're part of a big they're part of mm -hmm. a bigger picture that uh, uh, that is being envisioned here for the king under God. Yeah, and, and so I think most of the things you've discussed would still be like social, uh -huh. but uh -huh. uh, seventy two verse three is even bigger. Right? Yeah. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people, and the hills in righteousness, and so nature itself is part of God's creation. It's part of the creation that has been marred by the fall. Mm -hmm. And for God's righteousness to be fully instantiated, creation itself has to be healed in some way. Um, and, you know, what is the in some way, right? How is this dominion um, exercised? Well, ideally, like you said, it's through the free self-offering of the kings of the nations, right? Mm -hmm. uh, verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring him gifts. May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. And there's no like, may he kill his enemies such that they become like subjected and have no choice but to acknowledge him, mm -hmm. right? And this is part of the significance of Solomon's name mm. and part of the significance of why Solomon's the one who builds the temple and not David. In Chronicles, God says, you can't build the temple because you have shed much blood before me. But your son Solomon is the one who's going to build a temple. Yeah. And whereas David is a man of war, Solomon, whose very name means peace, as long as he is faithful to God, enjoys a reign of peace. And the neighboring kings do serve him and they do bring him mm -hmm. gifts because they recognize his wisdom, mm -hmm. not because mm -hmm. they fear his army. Yeah, that's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Well, and and that element there, right, of uh, of them coming and serving the king um, leads us in a way into Ephesians and the epistle reading. Did oh, you have any, did in you a big way. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I have a sniffle. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. <laughs> um. Yeah, so our epistle reading comes from 
the letter to the Ephesians, uh, and it's it's a it's a couple of little verses uh, kind of plucked uh, uh, together from a paragraph. So verses two and the beginning of three, and then verses five and six. Um, but what's happening here in Ephesians chapter three uh, is that uh, we've had in chapter one right a sort of like great cosmic view of God's election of the church, the way in which God has uh, uh, worked in Christ Jesus to give the inheritance of God's Son now to be shared with many others, and that this, in the end of chapter 1, right, came to the Ephesians specifically through their hearing the Word, right, their faith, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit uh, in their baptism and conversion. Then uh, after that, we talk more about grace, we talk about faith, and then comes to talk about the unity of all who are in Christ, uh, and specifically talks about the uh, nations and Israel. Uh, and this is important backdrop when you get, uh, if you look at chapter 2, if you're preparing to uh, uh, draw yourself into uh, the reading from chapter 3, or if you're planning to preach on it uh, or teach people about it in a different context. Um, chapter 2 is what chapter 3 comes right after, and he talks about, well, duh. Is that how it right? works usually? <laughs> but it, you know what? You'd be surprised how many people don't think that's important. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> the way that they read. <laughs> um, so in chapter 2, right, it talks about the grace of God, and it says in this, this, this grace, right, uh, of being saved by grace and through faith and in Jesus Christ, right, the one Jesus, receiving this great sonship and inheritance with him, right, comes through Christ, who is from Israel, but it can be equally shared by everybody who's not in Israel, right? He says, you Gentiles, you used to be pagans, you were darkened in your mind, not enlightened, you were alienated from the covenants and the communion, the, the, the people, the nation of Israel. But now in Christ, you were far off and you've been brought near. And you haven't just been brought near, but you've made, been made one with them. And he says the Gentiles are co-heirs yeah. along with Israel in Christ, that the nations are co-bodied because they're all together part of the one Christ's body. And co-partakers in the mystery of Christ. That's right. And this is really fruitful to read against the backdrop of our Old Testament readings, mm -hmm. right? Because <clears throat> it remains true that the Gentiles are coming towards God's salvation and praising God because that salvation has been mediated through Israel, through Jesus as an Israelite, but also as a you know personification or excuse me, someone who in his person recapitulates what Israel is, fulfills what Israel is. So that all remains true, you know, Israel's mediation of salvation to the Gentiles. But whereas the previous ones, it seemed like it was primarily by virtue of their like financing Israel, right? By their, you know, being tributaries to Israel. Mm -hmm. Now they are actually co-inheritors and co-partakers. Yeah, that's right. And uh, this this comes to a verse that um, uh, that we need to read and we need to not misread in the reading for today. How many times can I say read? Um, in Ephesians 3, uh, uh, verse 5, right? He says, this mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations 
as it has been now revealed to his apostles and the New Testament prophets by the Spirit, this mystery is that the Gentiles are co-heirs, right, co-body, members of the same body, and partakers, co-partakers of the uh, promise of Jesus Christ through the gospel. And on the one hand, part of you is like, it's not like it was total news, right? And 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 because uh, uh, there's lots of parts in the Old Testament that show right the future of the nations coming to Israel, right? When God's blessing and salvation are revealed. On the other, and some of the texts, right? Uh, uh, Isaiah 65 is one uh, where God speaks about people who are unclean for various reasons. And he says, if you keep my Sabbaths and you join my people and you keep my covenant, you are also my child, right? And people from all these other places, right, will sort of show up and they'll say, this one was born there. And people, some people read those to talk about bringing the nations in, right? On the other hand, right, there's, it, it, like you said, there's other texts that say, right, a nation that I haven't known has served me, meaning they're under me, mm. they're under us. And some people would interpret that to mean that when the nations come in, they'll be under our boot, right? They'll give yeah. us their money. They'll right, it'll be still like plundering the Egyptians, right? Uh, and in Christ, right, what's new, right, what's revealed now in a way that it wasn't revealed before is the full co-inheritance of everybody who's in Christ. Because Christ has how many bodies? One. Mm -hmm. And if you're in it, then you're part of it. Right? Uh, and there's not sort of a separation between like, well, this is the Jewish part of the body and this is the Gentile part of the body. And the Germans are down here, <laughs> right? And the tall people are up there and the people with hair, uh, <laughs> they're not even allowed in, for goodness sake. No, right? But that's not how the body of Christ works. Um, uh, and so this mystery, right, that God has revealed himself to the nations, and not just that he's revealed his glory to them to make them come in or make them want some instruction or kind of beg, right, uh, uh, from Israel, but that in Christ, who is God himself and a son of David, the king, right, everybody who comes in is united in one, with no distinction. Everybody comes in by the same faith and the same grace, uh, and everybody remains in uh, by the same life of faith and loyalty. And one way of thinking about the shift might be thinking about the shift of conceiving of Israel as either a political entity, maybe even an empire, right? Or as the church, mm. right? Because if it's first and foremost an ethnic polity and maybe an imperial one, then the Incorporation of other people groups makes sense in a political way. Um, whereas when, you know, if Christ, who is the kind of personal embodiment of Israel, um, and therefore starts the church as his body, well, the church is therefore Israel, and you get into that body by being baptized, um, not by a political treaty. Mm -hmm. Something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Well, we can see the uh, uh, kind of great symbol of this, right, where it's all encapsulated in the story from the beginning of Jesus' life uh, from the Gospel of Matthew. That's our Gospel reading. Yeah, so chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's right. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. And this is, of course, the Epiphany reading. This is uh, the coming of the 
wise men or magi uh, from the East. Uh, so they're coming from the East. We're not told anything about them other than that they are uh, magi. Um, that's a term that could be used for a few different things, but it's where we get, uh, it's part of the uh, group of words that we get the word magic from. Um, and that seems to be kind of what they are. So they're they're star readers and kind yeah. of sorcerer type astrologers. people. Astrologers. <laughs> astrologers, right? They're yeah. kind of they're 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 in the same class of folks uh, in Eastern empires that Daniel was in when he was one of the wise men uh, and diviners uh, in um, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's court. Uh, so they're 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 that type of folks. And okay, I'm. Oh, okay. I thought, you know, you hear somebody breathe sometimes, and you think they're going to talk. I'll hold my breath. I'm looking the, rest the other of the way. Session, so <laughs> hurry up. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but this is the introduction to the whole episode that we get here, right? We get the birth of Christ happen. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah. Fulfillment of Isaiah in chapter one, verse chapter two starts. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, and that's a problem, right? <laughs> behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying. Where's he who's been born king of the Jews? We jump straight into it, right? He's born right there, and then here they come. Uh, and it really draws us into the drama and the wonder of this, right? That people from far off, um, not and not just outsiders like they're not people who know the Holy Family like the shepherds were. The shepherds were, pro were, were, were probably Jews. These people are from way off, mm -hmm. right? And here they come. And they say, we've seen a star, right? God has put something into nature, right, to point us to him. And we've been able to figure it out and we're a coming. So there's a, a literal light, which is pointing to yeah, the glory that's incarnate. Right. Yeah, the epiphany, the shining, right? The mm -hmm. shining forth, the becoming apparent epiphany um, uh, happens through that star and it shines and it literally sort of shows them because they have the ability to see it and understand it. And this is the light that, that the Gentiles see in which they stream towards Jerusalem. And they come and they come bearing gifts. But they come with this question that's uh, uh, quite interesting. Uh, and of course, it is it getting ready to make Herod really mad. Um, <laughs> so they say, where's the one who's born king of the Jews? And he says... The son that I haven't killed already is that's right. wasn't born today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Herod Herod uh, uh, Herod the Great called himself the King of the Jews, mm -hmm. uh, loved De for facto, other people. He was. Yeah, and 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 he was in fact, um, uh, and he uh, uh, did nasty things even to his own family members and children to keep them from trying to take over uh, his kingdom and being as great as he Herod the Great is uh, or was or in his own mind. Um, but was he even a Jew? No, uh, he's an Edomian or an Edomite, as one would say. And this is a problem. Right? So he's not it, even a Davidic king. Yeah. Not only is he not a Davidic king, he's not a Jew. And so Herod becomes king in 37 BC. And so this is actually in living memory. Um, depending on how old Joseph was, Joseph might have been able to remember this. Mm. Um, and if you think about you know, the Messiah... He's supposed to restore the kingdom of David. And the kingdom in the kingdom of David, David had hegemony over Edom. And so the fact that an Edomite is on the throne is problematic for several reasons, right? He's not a Davidic king. Well, neither were the Hasmoneans. But he's also not even a Jew or an Israelite generally. Um, and he's an Edomite. And so this is an inversion of the political order that the 
Messiah is supposed to install. Uh, an inversion of you know, the prophecies of Genesis mm-hmm. of numbers. This isn't how it's supposed to be. That's right. And he's an evil dude. <laughs> yeah, and he's quite wicked. And it's a good reason. All of those things are good reasons for him to get really nervous <laughs> when people start talking about the Messiah or when people show up out of nowhere saying, hi, there's a king of the Jews born. Mm-hmm. Would you, oh, not king of the Jews, please tell us <laughs> where he is. <laughs> um, uh, and so, of course, that that will that will lead him uh, into his... Uh, 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 jealousy and self-protection in uh, slaughtering the holy innocents. Yeah. Uh, but they learn from the scribes there that the Messiah, the Davidic king, is to be born in Bethlehem, right, who will shepherd and rule over the people of Israel. And then Herod tells them, tries to figure out from them kind of what time maybe this might have happened. And then he sends them off to go find the child. And they do, and they go to Bethlehem, and they find, who knows what they went through uh, to find it, but they find the place where Jesus was laid. And they bring him gifts, uh, and there are potential significances to the, the different gifts, but the greatest gift that they bring him, I think we could say, is the gift of themselves. themselves. Yeah, and so they are a neat foil with Herod. Uh, so if you think about the Isaiah reading, where there's going to bring gold and frankincense. Well, the Magi bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But Isaiah also says, and they'll bring praises. And in fact, they come and they rejoice exceedingly with great joy, and they fall down and they worship. And so it's not just, we're going to finance the rebuilding of the Davidic empire, Mm -hmm. but we ourselves are here to fall down and worship. That's right. So they, they they give themselves, right, to this one, right? Isaiah said they'll bow down before the Lord and then praise mm-hmm. the Lord. Well, they do that by bowing down before the baby, right, and worshiping him. They also bring him gifts, but there's lots of different ways to give gifts, right? Mm-hmm. Right. There's sort of a like, oh, so-and-so did something. I should send a, you know, a little thank you. There's a $5 gift card to whatever, you know, uh, something like that. Um, but there's another way in which you give a gift, right, that is also a giving of yourself, right, mm-hmm. that's really heartfelt. And and they seem to do that here. Um, and I want to uh, point you to another passage that you can look at on your own. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the first four verses, Paul is talking about, again, the nations, right, churches in Greece and uh, 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 elsewhere, in Asia Minor, right, sending money to support the poor in Jerusalem, right? So the international church, mostly Gentile, pagan church, formerly pagan church, is going to send money through Paul in this big collection that will symbolize the unity of everybody in the church. Not their subjugation, though. And when Paul writes to the Corinthians to tell them what these other people have done and to kind of encourage them also to give, he says, I want to tell you that the Macedonians have given, right, beyond their means. They've given out of love for this cause, right, for the saints in Jerusalem. And he says, they gave of them, they gave their very selves first to the Lord and then to us. And I think that's a, 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 a another a parallel kind of figure to what we see the Magi doing here. Right? Just as you mm-hmm. said, they give themselves. Yeah. They come, they bring their praises. They don't just bring some cash to finance something and say, please don't smush us. 
right? Or something like that, like they're just tr trying to make a big empire happy. Right? They're coming to praise the God who they know here in the form of a little child. And, and a child who's born in relative poverty. Mm -hmm. And this is one way that the church continues to mediate the presence of God. Right? You can continue to give yourself to God by giving yourself to the church, including with your wallet, yeah. right? You can actually support people who need your money and you can support people to the point that it pinches you a little bit such that you are giving of yourself to the church and in giving to the church, you are giving yourself to God in another way. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And in that way, we can be uh, uh, part of the continued shining of the light among one another as we share uh, with our resources, with our love, mm -hmm. uh, and in so, in our words, in so many other ways, right, uh, sharing ourselves. But uh, one final uh, reflection on this um, uh, for Epiphany to think about uh, the shining forth of that light of God. Um, we see here in the beginning of Matthew's gospel, right, Herod, the supposed king of the Jews, who is afraid of and rejecting Jesus, uh, and later on, the gospel according to Luke tells us in his trial, right, uh, he sends him away, right, laughs at him, doesn't care. The Gentiles come, right, these magi come, and they worship him. They can see the light of Christ. They've seen the star and they know, but they don't just know that the light tells them that this is the Lord and the newborn king. They actually trust and believe that when they're looking at the baby. Mm -hmm. When Jesus is crucified, both Jews and Gentiles, right, both the council in Jerusalem and Pilate, mock his kingship on the cross. Yeah. We'll put a crown of thorns on him. This is the king of the Jews. We'll laugh at him and spit on him. Save yourself and come down, right? And the light of faith and all the signs, right, that might be there for us, right? In fact, that the, la that later Herod actually asks for a sign, or yeah. he, when he gets the chance to see Jesus, he's excited. He's like, "Oh, I've been hoping to see a miracle." Yeah, show me a miracle, Jesus. Whereas his he cooperates in yeah. putting the sacrament of God, the sign of God's love, mm -hmm. right? The visible representation of God's love to yeah. death, even as his father had tried to put him to death as an infant. That's right. That's right. Um, but when we think about Epiphany, we can think both about the star, but we can think also about the cross because that's where we see, yeah. right, God revealed to us his love, and we see it actually in, what is it, self-giving, mm -hmm. right? His self-giving love for the world, the world that rejected him, to draw all people to himself as he's raised up. Um, and so as we approach the Feast of the Epiphany, uh, we can, by meditating uh, on these scriptures, see his light, hear his word, and then go in the Eucharist to offer ourselves to him in our praises, uh, in our offerings. Um, and joining ourselves to his sacrifice. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. All right. Good. Well, thank you very much for joining us here on Formed in the Word. May God bless you and draw you ever more deeply into the mystery of his Son. Amen. This has been a Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. For more inspiring and informative content like this, 
please visit formed.org.